Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Taylor Adams, author of the novel Hairpin Bridge. Taylor, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Sure. Well, if someone hasn't yet heard about your new novel, Hairpin Bridge, how would you describe the novel? Yeah, so uh, Hairpin Bridge came out uh, June 15th. It is a thriller about a young woman who is determined to prove that her twin sister's suicide was actually a murder by confronting the man she believes is responsible. And the only problem is he is the cop who allegedly found her sister's body under a derelict bridge way out in Montana. And so Lena, the protagonist, arranges a meeting with the cop out there on that same bridge. And as her questions to that cop become more pointed, what she learns puts her sister's final hours into focus and then her own life into really immediate danger. But as it turns out, she also has a plan for that as well. So kind of a fun, you know, battle of the wills, sort of a mystery, sort of a dual timeline thriller. I got to really just have fun with a lot of different storytelling devices that I'd always wanted to to, to try to work on. And I'm curious, can you uh, pinpoint or remember the original idea or impetus that led you to writing Hairpin Bridge? Let's see. I, I don't know. It's kind of like a chicken and chicken or the egg question when I try and think about it that way, because for sure, like I'd always wanted to set something on a bridge. I always thought an abandoned bridge would just be so eerie and so fascinating and, and neat. And then I also really clearly remember for a long time wanting to write a, uh, a story about, you know, trying to solve a family member's murder and, you know, kind of finding finding the entry point into that. And I had always thought that would be a fun, um, you know, way to explore kind of a dual timeline structure where, mm-hmm. you know, we've got our main character solving a mystery and then we've got the, you know, the other character kind of reenacting that at the same pace that the the main character is learning it and the reader is learning it. Like, you know, that was a, a really fun, you know, story structure to me that I'd never tried before. And I, I kind of like, you know, when all these different elements kind of came together, I was like, okay, I think I've, I think I've got enough here to, to start outlining <laughs> And so can you tell us a little bit and go back a little bit, what was your initial writing journey that led you to writing and getting your first novel published? Oh man. Um, let's see. So my first novel was published in 2014. Uh, it's a thriller called I shot. It was published with a uh, UK small press. Um, they're, they're digital only. So it's, it's available. It's just on, uh, on Amazon um, and not in physical formats. Um, let's see. I, to take it back though, I think it was about 2011, 2010 when I really started, you know, I was out of college. I'd studied film in college. I'd worked, I was a PA on a, on a few movies. Um, and I was a little disillusioned about, about film as a career path <laughs> at that point. I kind of like, I was realizing, oh my gosh, I have to, I have to chase work, you know, because it's, it's just so feast or famine, especially, you know, not living in LA because I did not live in LA. So it was like when there was a movie in town, there was work. When there wasn't, there was no work. And so I switched over to, I worked at a TV station instead and, uh, you know, had a, had a day job basically in that capacity. And then I think it was, yeah, it was 2010 or 2011 that I was like, okay, I really need to get serious about hopefully writing a book then because that had always been something I wanted to do. And so it was about three years. Yeah. At least three years, you know, from that, that moment of, okay, I've got to get serious here to, uh, having I shot published with a small press. And then from that point on, like I've tried to 
you know, it took me three years to write the first book because in part, because I just did, I did everything wrong and had to redo a lot of things and had to, you know, just make a lot of mistakes and, and learn and correct them while I was going. And I think the biggest mistake I made was not sticking to a, uh, a writing schedule because it is, it's so amazing how, like, even if I don't feel like I can write, if I just physically plant myself, you know, in a chair in front of my computer and force myself to work, like I'm usually glad I did by the end of the day. That's great. Well, can you tell us a little bit? I mean, um, obviously, I think you're in the Pacific Northwest, if I'm not mistaken. How did yes. you en- How did you end up publishing with the UK Small Press? Can you talk about that? Did you Did you try for New York? I'm assuming that you did, and and not as much as I probably should have. I just kind of uh, let's see. I remember I was. I was doing the kind of the agent search. I was querying agents. And then I also, you know, in the back burner, I was also querying um, smaller publishers that I, because I didn't, you know, honestly, maybe this is just kind of me mis, misassessing the value of iShot, but I had always thought it was just kind of a, you know, a, a practice novel. Like I didn't, I didn't anticipate a huge anything for it or that it would be much more than just the start of a, hopefully of a career. And so I also looked at smaller publishers that did not need an agent to submit. And so then that was kind of how I, I ended up roped in with, uh, you know, a smaller publisher without an agent. And then I later agented up a few years down into the process. So I took a really weird backwards uh, journey into, you know, now being with HarperCollins. Right. <laughs> William Morrow, I should say. Well, you said you made mistakes with that first novel and you mentioned not sticking with a writing schedule initially. What else did you do wrong and what were what were kind of the learning experiences that you had um, as you were working through that? Oh, man, tons. Let's see. I think um, in addition to the, the writing schedule, because that's that's crucial. I only wrote when I felt like I should write. And so I way cut my productivity down. So that was that was definitely mistake one. Mistake number two um, that I that I learned from was and, and maybe this is just more unique to my style, but. As I write multiple drafts, I've learned that I need to focus on getting the big stuff right, like, you know, the shape of the story, the plotting, the the ordering of the twists and all of that before I can start really doing the, I guess what I would consider the more fun stuff of writing, like, you know, really polishing the dialogue and, you know, just kind of polishing the, the descriptions and the atmosphere and, and the, the character beats and all those smaller things that, you know, are layered into it. And And I think where I made a lot of mistakes was... I would I would put all that effort into, you know, fine tuning scenes, but then later I would look at the story more structurally and go, okay, that scene is not necessary or, you know, I need to I need to totally reshape this section of the story. So, I put a lot of very fine detail into uh, you know, into content that has to eventually get cut. And I think and cutting is just a natural part of the the writing process, but I think the best way to make sure that I'm you know, putting all my energy in the right places is to first of all, focus on the big stuff and make sure like the shape of the story is correct and then start the fine detail. <laughs> Once I know for sure that this scene is actually going to stay in the finished book. And so what is that process like for you? I mean, you talk about like, you know, knowing that that scene will stay in the book. So is it kind of a, um, would you describe it as kind of a fleshed out outline that you're, that you're writing and then you, and then you're assured that that, scene will be in the book and so you you go into detail or can you talk about a little bit more about kind yeah. of the process and how it works for you 
Yeah, and that's kind of a like a fleshed out outline is kind of a, a good way to describe it because my especially my first few drafts I've noticed just kind of my style. Um, my first draft especially and every draft after that they start out very skeletal and very underweight and usually about twenty to thirty thousand words shorter than what the final product will be. And it's it is basically like a detailed outline. And then as I keep rewriting it because I'm I'm kind of weird and. and my preferred way of rewriting is actually starting with a new Word document and then having both Word docs side by side. So on one hand, I've got draft number three, and then on the other side of the screen, I've got my new draft, draft four, and I'm retyping that one word by word. Um, but the the great thing about doing it that way for me is I can, you know, it forces me to focus on every single word and every single sentence, first of all. So it, it you know, it's kind of like running something through a filter. Um, but it also, it just, it helps me, I don't know, it's kind of like I'm, I'm, I'm retelling the story like five or six times before I, I really feel like the draft is, like the book is done. Mm-hmm. And it's just from those, those smaller drafts where it's just kind of a, a matter of like, you know, I finish a draft and I go, okay, I'm going to, here's, there's things that worked about this, things that didn't, I'm just going to try again and write another draft and start again on page one and use this one as a guide. And bit by bit, it's amazing how all those little improvements and little fixes, it's like kind of like the story kind of hardens before my eyes. And I can i can really see what I'm trying to do bit by bit. And when you're saying that you uh, have these documents side by side and you're figuring out what fits and what doesn't, are you, are you basically cutting and pasting scenes from the previous uh, draft? into the new draft and then ones that don't work for you, you kind of expand on that. I'm sorry to be so, um, so technical. Oh, I'm no. just trying to, to figure no, out. No worries. <laughs> yeah, no, I, it's just a, it's more, more of just a matter of just typing, just typing from page one of the new draft, just starting over and then using the other one as a guide. So, you know, if I'm going to keep a scene because I'm, I'm pretty sure that this works and this is going to, this is the way forward. I'll still rewrite the scene. Um, you know, word by word using the other one as a, as a template. Got it. And yeah, it, it sounds kind of crazy when I, when I describe it, I'm the only writer I've met who, who does it this way for rewriting. Um, I get sometimes some pretty strange looks when I describe my, my rewriting process. So it definitely wouldn't work for everybody, but for whatever reason, it, it, it really works for me. <laughs> well, I, I have to say after over 400 interviews with writers and authors, I don't think there is one way. I think the the only thing that matters is what shows up on your editor's desk when you turn in the final manuscript. That makes sense. <laughs> so so I, I wouldn't be too self-conscious about it. I think everybody figures out what works for them. I mean, I, I, I've interviewed Dean Kuhn several times, and we all know his success. And he will rewrite one page up to 30 or 40 times before he moves on to page two. So, um, Wow. Yeah. So everybody does it differently. Um so, so I'm curious, I just wanted to circle back really quickly. You said you were disillusioned with film. You worked as a production assistant. Was it just the issue of chasing work that you mentioned, or was it other things about film that, that, you know, because I think sometimes people from a distance have these ideas about Hollywood and they don't realize what goes into uh, a modern movie that ends up on the screen. <laughs> totally. Um, Let's see. I think the biggest thing for me was the the stability of the work because, you know, actually doing it, I really enjoyed it. But I, I also, I mean, I was living in Eastern Washington in uh, Spokane where there, there is a, a film industry. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that's you know pretty active up there and, and there was work but our bodies come in different shapes and sizes so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too that's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. I also like moving to LA was just not something that I, you know, was prepared to do. And so that left me kind of feeling a little bit, you know, a little bit stuck. And so that was I think that was the biggest um point for me was, you know, I just I can't, I can't really plan a career here and I'm not really able to make the, make the leap that I would need to, to really go for this. So I think I need to switch. My plan was to sort of switch that energy into finding a, you know, a stable day job that is kind of, you know, adjacent to film, which is how I end up work, ended up working at a TV station, which I, <laughs> I very much enjoyed. Right. Um, and then, you know, putting all of my, all of my spare time into writing, um, because yeah, I, I was a I was a master control operator at a TV station, also in Spokane for a little while, and then moved over to Seattle, and then uh, worked as worked in sales in their their TV station there. Um, but yeah, I, I think it was kind of a matter for me of separating, you know, what my what my goal, my long term goal is, versus finding something that I can just do nine to five that will give me a reliable paycheck. And I, and I found that I was a lot happier, you know, even though I was splitting my energy between basically two jobs, then um, I found that I was a lot happier with that element of stability. Sure. I'm, I'm curious what, given your success to date uh, with your novels being published and um, discussing work, I think you told me before we started recording that you're now writing full time. I'm curious, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories and novels? I think the biggest, the biggest thing, and I would have told myself this so many times if I had a time machine, um, is just write every day. Try and, you know, whatever your unique schedule is, you know, try and, and find, you know, I, I think two hours a day is a good thing to shoot for. That was what I always shot for. I didn't always succeed you know, two hours a day or a thousand words a day, whatever your, you know, your kind of ideal amount of progress is, um, but to just really stick to it. And it, it, it's really hard. It's hard to repeatedly do it. And yeah, I, I think that that is the biggest thing that I would for sure tell myself would be just write every day. Don't wait until you feel like writing and then write then because, you know, the end result is you're going to I only feel like writing about once a week. So then you're only writing about once sure. a week. Um, so yeah, I think that would be the biggest piece of advice is just, just stick to stick to writing. And also um, I think also rewriting, at least for me, like my first drafts and my third drafts and even, you know, first few drafts are just nowhere near 
good enough. And and that's I, I just kind of cut myself slack that, okay, the first few iterations of this story are going to be terrible. But, you know, by continually putting in the work and continually rewriting, like you really, you refine it into what you had envisioned it would be way back when you started your first draft. But not to be discouraged by how bad your first draft turns out, because every time I finish a first draft, I'm always like, oh, man, is it? I know they're supposed to be bad, but is it supposed to be that bad? And, you know, you just you you stick with it and you fix problems and keep fixing problems. And those little problems that you fix really add up. That's great. Well, what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Ooh, uh, nonfiction or, oh, sorry, novels Novels or nonfiction. Okay. Um, right now I am reading Project Hail Mary by uh, Andy Weir. I'm loving it. I loved The Martian too. Um, and then actually you'd mentioned um, nonfiction too. I, I hadn't thought about what I'd read lately that was nonfiction, but I read um, The Splendid and the Vile by Eric Larson mm-hmm. last year. That is an incredible book. That's great. Well, where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your novels? Yeah. So my website is tayloradamsauthor.com. And I also, I'm on Facebook and it's just, uh, it's, you know, backslash Taylor Adams author backslash on Facebook. And then I'm also on Instagram. Uh, my Instagram handle is at taylor.adams.author. Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Taylor Adams, author of the new novel, Hairpin Bridge. The novel is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Taylor, thanks for doing this interview. Yeah, thank you so much. This was really fun. Great. Now, stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of Hairpin Bridge by Taylor Adams. Available wherever audiobooks are sold. You look... Exactly like her. Lena Nguyen had heard this many times before. It never got any less upsetting, being someone else's walking, talking ghost. And you were twins. She nodded. Identical, right? She nodded again. Something changed behind the state trooper's eyes, and he looked regretful, like he had already committed an offense by not starting with this. I'm, I should say, I'm so sorry for your loss. Another greatest hit. Lena made polite eye contact. I can't imagine what it's like to lose a sibling. No one ever could. Just try to take it one day at a time. The oldies kept coming. You'll never get over it, but someday you will get past it. That's a new one, Lena thought. She had added to the list. Corporal Raymond Reshevik had agreed to meet her here in a gravel parking lot shared by the Magma Springs Diner and a shell station, 60 miles outside of Missoula. An exodus of wildfire evacuees fed a constant stream of passing traffic, and the highway hit a dangerous junction here, under two blind corners and no stoplight. Corporal Reshevik himself was a gorilla-like man stuffed into a tan-brown highway patrol uniform, pulled taut to contain him, all shoulders and biceps and a gentle smile. He had shaken Lena's hand with earnest delicacy. He had bags under his eyes, the soft color of bruises. 
Thank you for doing this, she said. Of course. I really appreciate it, you know, with you being on the clock and all. He half smiled. My shift is over. He studied her again for a long moment, still transfixed, and Lena felt a familiar impatience. Discussing her sister with strangers always felt like this, a choose-your-own-adventure book she'd memorized ages ago. She knew exactly what Reshevik was thinking before he said it, his words arriving right on schedule. I'm sorry, I just, I can't get over how much you look just like her. You should try it, she thought sourly. It's awful, grieving for someone while seeing her face in the mirror every single morning. It must be awful, seeing her face in the mirror every morning. Every day, anything with a reflection, even a car mirror, can just blindside you. She looked at him. You have my sympathy, Lena. Yeah. And maybe I underestimated you, Ray. A squealing hiss startled her. She turned. An 18-wheeler had taken the turn too fast. For a stomach-fluttery moment, ten tons of rolling cargo skidded directly at them on locked tires. Then the truck swerved back into its lane, and Kropel Reshevik watched the tinted windows pass, as if expecting the driver to apologize. He didn't. The engine throttled up and the rig thundered on, a wash of displaced air tugging their clothes. Lena swept her bangs from her face and watched the trailer's stenciled letters hurtle past like film in a projector. Sidewinder. In another moment, gone. Just a ring in her ears and the gritty taste of dust. Idiot, the cop muttered. I'm really here. She thought, I'm really here, doing this. The dust in her teeth made it real. After months of waiting, 24-year-old Lena was finally here in Montana. Miles from home, moving forward, making progress. Another voice, just a faint whisper in her mind. Don't get comfortable. Don't let your guard down. Not even for a second. She caught herself twirling a lock of her hair with her index finger and tugging, a tick she had had since elementary school, and stopped herself. It made her look nervous. Reshevik didn't notice. He was squinting into the distance. Hairpin Bridge isn't far from here, but there's zero shade once you're up there. The sun becomes a spotlight, saps your energy. Before we go, do you need anything from the diner? Water, maybe? I'll buy something. All right. He pointed. I'll start my vehicle. Follow me. She hurried back inside the air-conditioned Magma Springs Diner. She had already waited there for hours today, sipping black coffee as groups of firefighters talked shop over plates of greasy eggs. She pretended to waver at the mini-fridge, stocked with energy drinks and bottled water. And once she was certain Corporal Reshevik was occupied inside his cruiser and not watching her through the front windows, she returned to her booth. There, she had a laptop on the table. She triple-checked the power cable, 
the Sony unit, and the connection to the restaurant's router. All good. Thanks again, she said to the lady at the long counter. I'll be back soon. Is that a college project you're downloading? Something like that. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.